Welcome back to Building Tomorrow, a show dedicated to the ways tech and innovation are making the world a freer, safer, and more prosperous place. Last week, I had the opportunity to attend a conference sponsored by the Lincoln Network, a think tank slash advocacy group uh, pushing for uh, freedom in technology, uh, freedom from, from regulation. The conference called the Reboot American Innovation Conference here in D.C., as you can imagine uh, from my description, they were for <laughs> rebooting American innovation. Uh, but there was a lot of interesting speakers at the conference, from uh, astronautics engineers to uh, experts in Chinese, the future of Chinese tech policy, discussions of flying cars. So, so the whole gamut of tech issues being covered at the conference and had the opportunity uh, because of Zach Graves and some of the folks at the Lincoln Network to sit down with kind of leading thinkers about the future of tech, both in America and around the world. What follows is the first of three interviews we were, I was able to conduct at the conference. Uh, this first is with Dr. Robert Zubrin, an astronautics engineer, uh, president of the Mars Society. And I think you'll enjoy his uh, fascinating take on the future of private space exploration uh let's start with mars okay why would you say we should go settle mars first before we settle the moon well uh i would although that's not the fundamental issue okay uh i i do believe the moon is a valid destination i think there's many useful activities that people could go on the moon and in a uh a competent program of human expansion into the solar system, the moon should be included. Okay, what I am against is a program that hangs us up on the moon so that we cannot go beyond the moon. Uh, and uh, for instance, NASA's current architecture, which is a maximum cost, uh, maximum uh, liability uh, 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 lunar program and minimum capability, I must add, would hang us up on the moon forever, even it, assuming it actually even gets to the moon, because they're talking about building a lunar orbiting space station first and then using an extremely expensive launch vehicle to build the station, to sustain the station, and uh, using the station adds propulsion requirements to the mission, so it adds launch requirements. It, it, uh, it's a minimum capability program at maximum cost, and um, I would, if, if I wanted to use that heavy lift SLS at all, I would only use it on the first couple of launches to land some heavy cargoes on the moon to get the base started. Uh, but then after that, redeploy it, uh, assuming that it is still the heaviest launcher available, that it hasn't been uh, supplanted by the uh, SpaceX Starship, um, redeploy it to uh, address humans to Mars. Uh, you know, the SLS, uh, it's ironic. Um, I was on the team that developed the preliminary design for the SLS at Martin Marietta, now Lockheed Martin, in 1988. That was wow. 31 years ago. And it was designed explicitly for the purpose of executing the Mars Direct plan of throwing uh, payloads directly to Mars, first the Earth return vehicle, then the HAB module containing people, Earth return vehicle making its return propellant on Mars. That's what that design was based on. It's been 31 years. There are people working on that program that weren't born yet when that program was begun, which is incredible. But, but furthermore, okay, now, we designed it, by the way, not because we thought it was the best possible design. We thought it was the quickest possible design to execute and get flying because it was basically just the space shuttle without the orbiter. 
And the uh, we wanted to have that thing flying by mid-90s. And if it had been flying by the mid-90s, it would now have had a quarter century of honorable service doing things that nothing else could do and be ready for retirement with the advent of Falcon Heavy and Starship. Okay, but instead, it's a vehicle out of its time. It's as if they had uh, developed the P-51 Mustang and not deployed it till the 1980s. So instead of being the best fighter in World War II, it was introduced as an obsolete uh, fighter in the in in the late Cold War. Uh, the the uh, and uh, so there's a problem with that. But nevertheless, it, it does represent a certain capability at this point that while it's overpriced, is still its capability is not yet duplicated by anything else. And so long as that's the case, so long as we would want to use it at all, I'd only want to use it for things where it's necessary. It's like okay, you know, to accomplish the Normandy landings, you send your best combat uh, troops to take the beach, but after the beach is taken, the combat troops are redeployed to the front, and rear echelon forces are able to control the beach and administer the further landing of cargoes and so forth. Once we establish the lunar base, we don't want to keep using SLSs or comparable vehicles to support the lunar base. A a competently designed lunar base would be able to make propellant, and we could do missions with medium lift launchers, and so instead of using the lunar base as an entire of SLS launches forever, okay, we uh, let the SLS do some cutting-edge work there and then redeploy it to the front. Yeah. I, I was struck by one of the statistics you used in your talk where you said, so the SLS program is $2 billion a year, 31 years down the line, still nothing. And you contrasted that with $1 billion in six years for Elon Musk to get the SpaceX uh, the, the rocket up. Like, that's... That's a remarkable distinction. Right. Well, the SLS, uh, it's, it's $2 billion a year for about the past decade. Before that, if funding was smaller. But still, still. we're talking uh, order of magnitude more funding, okay, without the real, uh, realization of a flight system. Uh, order of magnitude more funding and it, it, more than three times the time. Um, and uh, the real point here is, it, well, there's two points. One is SLS and the, the government program. Uh, NASA's program in particular in the area of space launch and human space flight becoming vendor-driven instead of Mm purpose-driven. NASA's science programs in terms of uh, planetary robotic exploration and space astronomy remain largely purpose-driven. They spend money to do things. The human space flight program is doing things to spend money. That's vendor-driven. That's why one continues to accomplish important things, whereas the other has been adrift. Okay. Now... If you take purpose-driven together with the entrepreneurial spaceflight, if you are purpose-driven, if you are spending money to do things, then you want to spend the minimum money to do things so you can do the most things for the money that you have. So you take advantage of the entrepreneurial spaceflight revolution. You do not keep the lunar program, for example, as an entitlement for SLS and Orion. You use the cheapest possible launch vehicles and capsules that are available, which are, at this point, the Falcon Heavy and Dragon. Uh... You know, one reason why NASA is building this stupid lunar orbiting space station is because the tr- <laughs> Orion is so heavy, 26 tons, mm-hmm. compared to the Apollo capsule is 9, uh, th- that, and Dragon, which is 10, but half again bigger than the uh, Apollo capsule. Uh, 26 tons, it's so heavy that even the SLS can't deliver it all the way to low lunar orbit with enough fuel for it to come home. So instead, they have to deliver it to a high lunar orbit where the space station is going to be. And that means two SLSs per lunar mission. Uh, 
which is an immense cost and furthermore probably unfeasible from an operational point of view because they'd have to launch two SLSs within a short time of each other and they can't. Uh, the, 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 whereas if they simply used Orion at 10 tons, SLS would be enough certainly to deliver it to low lunar orbit. In fact, Falcon Heavy would be. And there's more efficient plans to take advantage of lunar resources where you don't, don't even send the capsule to low lunar orbit. You just send the lander to the lunar surface from low Earth orbit and refuel it on the surface and come back. And I discuss these things in my book, The Case for Space. I go into some of the specifics on this. But basically, the issue is this. Whenever you want to do something in space, there's always going to be people that come up to you who say, you can't do your program until you do my program. And you have to, if you have a purpose-driven program, you say, just wait. I'll tell you if I need you. Uh, We're not doing this for you. We're doing this for us. We're not a, you don't want to run a business with your vendors determining your expenditures. You determine your expenditures and you buy from only the necessary vendors. So the, the issue of a free market in space involves not just letting people develop uh, new systems. We have that, but having the primary customer willing to shop on the base to act as a customer in a free market instead of a collaborator in a monopoly. Right. So, I mean, NASA allowing private entrepreneurs to launch their own satellites. I mean, it's been a relatively new development over the last couple of decades versus a model where NASA runs all rocket launches, all satellite launches have to go through a national space agency. Is that the kind of development well, the, the that we've seen in the, the, I mean, look, the NASA, uh, Science Directorate recently launched a planet-finding telescope called TESS, and uh, it was launched on a Falcon 9 and uh, instead of an Atlas. So the launch was one-third the cost. They spent $65 million on it instead of $200 million on it. So that saved the Science Directorate $140 million to spend on science, on their payloads. So that was intelligent shopping. Yeah. Okay. They didn't say, oh, no, we're not going to launch the tests until the SLS is available because we want to give business to the SLS. But the human spaceflight program, because it involves more money, has become the captive of uh, the vendors and uh, and of, of various other constituencies. And so, for instance, you have Senator Shelby saying, you're not going to the moon unless you use SLS, which is another version of you're not doing your program until you do my program. Okay, now, and once again, why use Orion when Dragon weighs one-third as much? Um, Well, because the purpose of this program is to give money to Orion. Now, I can actually think of of uses for SLS. I can think of uses of Orion. But you don't insert them into other missions uh, uh, just for the hell of it, uh, as, as a form of rent. Right. Yeah. Or, or I mean, and, and that can be rent payments to, uh, you know, space industrial complex vendors. Yes. Or, you know, Congress people are trying to protect jobs programs in their district. Correct. Right. Their constituencies. Um, so we have this really cool stuff happening with like private space exploration, private space, you know, satellite launches. Why is that happening now in this in this previous in this decade as opposed to 2030? Why in the 1980s was this not like well, is it regulatory constraints, technological constraints, financial constraints? Well, I think uh, the reason is this. In the 1960s, NASA was extremely successful. No one would say, I have to start an entrepreneurial space company if we're ever going to make it to the moon. NASA was storming heaven. They were doing it. They were purpose driven. Okay, the uh, and they were accomplishing immense things. Now, 
then what happened was in the 70s, the plug was pulled on that, and the NASA human spaceflight program in particular and the associated space launch programs were set adrift. Mm. Okay, they had no imperative, and so they became vendor-driven. The science programs remained purpose-driven. They were well-organized scientific constituencies that say, yeah, we want to send these robots to Mars, we want to send these space telescopes, we want to do this stuff, and, and they managed to keep control of, of those parts of NASA. But so, okay, in the 70s, I mean, there were already some people who began to talk about private space stuff. But still in the 70s, uh, Apollo was a very recent memory. And, and the idea that NASA would get its act together again, the political class would get its act together and we'd start pushing, was still pretty strong. In the 80s, it weakens. In the 90s, it weakens more. At a certain point, it, 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 it becomes apparent to more and more people that if something like this is going to be done, someone else is going to have to do it. And then, um, now, but furthermore, the idea of human expansion into space uh, became more uh, 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 prominent in our society. Uh, you know, by the 90s, you have people with money and influence who grew up reading science fiction, who grew up watching Star Trek, who grew up watching Apollo. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and... Who, who understood that a positive human future involves human expansion into space. And um, so in the 90s, you start seeing entrepreneurial startups. Uh, and then finally, in 2001, one person uh, with the actual means to uh, finance such a startup adequately becomes a convert, uh, Elon Musk, uh, and then Bezos, uh, I think, Musk was drawn by the, the vision of human expansion to Mars that I and others have promoted, uh, but, uh, Bezos by this idea of uh, solar power satellites and uh, orbiting Earth colonies that Gerard O'Neill and his associates had promoted. But in other words, the vision recruits the forces to realize the vision. Yeah. And uh, uh, that's why Victor Hugo said that nothing can stop an idea whose time has come because mm-hmm. the idea recruits the, the forces for its victory. And so it did, And but furthermore, people realized by then that the forces to realize the victory would probably not become in the political class. I mean, there are some who continued to push on that, including me, but the real success had been those who realized the, the taking advantage of the power of the market that they could make this happen. And uh, so the idea was the cause, the market was the means, uh, but I, I do think they can t- they're going to need our help. In other words, we as the taxpayers, okay, and as Americans who want to see America succeed in space must insist that NASA adopt the most efficient means. That yes, uh, we're giving you a certain amount of money. We want you to spend it wisely. We want you to be a sharp, uh, a smart shopper, okay, because, first of all, that will allow you to accomplish your immediate goals, which otherwise you are not going to accomplish. Okay, so if you really want to get to the moon by 2024, you have to put aside your commitment to certain monopolies and say, how can I do this in the most uh, quick and efficient way possible? Okay, you have to drop the conceit that you agree that you can't do your program until you do these other programs. Okay, you have to say, no, I want to get to the moon. My goal is to get to the moon, not to give business to certain vendors. Okay, <laughs> I will give business to the vendors that help me get to the moon the fastest and the cheapest, and which therefore free up as much resources as possible for other things. And uh, so, you know, the free market has two sides to it to operate. It has 
the, the sellers, with the producers, and it also has the customers. And uh, we have to make our government a free market customer. And by doing so, we can have a terrific space program. So you mentioned the sense of vision. There was a generation that grew up in the shadow of the Cold War space race and the shadow of the moon landings that are playing with science and space-based toys and watching science-based space-based television and they're inspired by that they go on to get you know phds and in, in aeronautics engineering like you know like yourself my own father chemist inspired by you know the, the the space race among other things are you worried that this that we've kind of lost that sense that the generations coming up don't have because they don't have those kind of major cultural landmarks that were you know uh, important key moments in their upbringing that they they're, they're going to lose some of that vision some of that that sense of mission and narrative well uh it's true uh look the people who got us to the moon in the 1960s were the same people or the younger brothers of the people who won World War II. And they had a concept that the nation accomplished great things, the great could accomplish amazing things. You know, uh, U.S. armed forces in 1941 were negligible. By 1944, we're producing an aircraft carrier a week. Uh, the, the, you know, that this sort of thing could be done. And they understood it could be done. They understood also that risks would have to be taken to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and they were prepared to do that. Uh, and if you lose that belief that you as a nation can do things like that, well, that becomes self-defeating. Then you be increasingly become a nation whose great deeds are recorded in museums as opposed to newspapers. Uh, you accept cultural decline. You accept that. I mean, the, 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 the America's self-conception needs to be as a nation of pioneers. Now, a problem that we've had is with, with NASA, okay, like any organization, um, an organization uh, can be formed around a cause, and it can be extremely effective and daring in accomplishing that cause. But after a certain amount of time, whether that cause is accomplished or even not, uh, the organization becomes about preserving the organization. And this is true with uh, uh, major parts of NASA. It's, I mean, it's true with trade unions, with political parties, uh, almost any kind of organization you can think of uh, 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 exhibits this behavior. Uh, and so while we still have uh, the significant parts of NASA that remain functional, uh, other parts without a real cause ha- have gone adrift. Um, the, uh, now, and as a nation... Uh, we're, we're losing this this thread, uh, and uh, and I think this is very dangerous. Uh, now I think uh, we can have a daring, expansive, bold, uh, uh, expectancy-shattering, world-astonishing space program uh, again, and uh, but I think the best means to it will be by embracing this entrepreneurial space revolution, which is going to uh, not only make it far more cost-effective, but far more creative. 
uh, in terms of multitudes of ideas of how to do things getting into the mix instead of everything being determined by central committees and, and, and so forth. And by the way, the more spaceflight we have, the faster it's going to advance because there's going to be more new technologies tried out. As the spaceflight becomes cheaper, you become um, more willing to take risks. You don't have to say, I'm not going to fly this unless it's been flown before. You say, I'm, I'm going to fly this because yes. this looks like it's, it's better than the one that was flown before. Um, and I'm willing to take a chance, even though it hasn't been proven in space yet. So on the point of you know entrepreneurial spirit, um, and I, I know we interviewed Jim Cantrell for the uh, podcast a few a few weeks ago, and um, you actually were the person who introduced Can- Elon Musk to Jim Cantrell. Um, how did you meet Elon Musk? What was your first encounter with him? Oh, Elon Musk. Well, the Mars Society held a fundraiser in the Silicon Valley area in um, 2001. Uh, We were building our Mars Desert Research Station. We needed money. Um, And this was a good place to go. We had a fundraiser at at, uh, Bill Clancy's house who lived in Silicon Valley, a nice house. And and it was $500 a plate. Well, we got a check from someone for $5,000. And, whoa, what's this? Somebody sending us uh, larger than the requirement. Who's this? Elon Musk. Had never heard of him. Um, the uh, So we looked him up and we thought, oh, Elon Musk, he's the head of PayPal. Now that we had heard of because there were these irritating people that wanted to pay their dues via PayPal <laughs> instead of by checks or credit cards like normal people. Now, under the circumstances, I decided to put that grievance aside and uh, the uh, and I met with him and we had a two-hour cup of coffee. Uh, before the event, and we met after, and he came out to Denver. He visited me and my little company, Pioneer Astronautics, uh, and he donated a hundred thousand to help fund the Mars Desert Research Station, and uh, and so forth. And he joined our board um, for a while, but after a number of months on our board, he said to me, "Look, I'm not the kind of person that wants to be part of someone else's operation." Uh, you know, I have to lead my own thing. And, um, so, uh, and, 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 and so I'm, I'm going to go in another direction. Now I'm thinking of two things that I want to do because look, I've already made all the money I could ever want or use. And the question is, what am I going to do with the rest of my life? Um, and, um, he had smartly cashed out of PayPal while the dot-com was still up right. there. Good time. <laughs> uh, and uh, so he had a lot of money and wanted to do something important with his life. And he says, well, there's two things. One is humans to Mars. Okay, I, 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 you know, I, I, I agree with your thesis. This is the key task in making humanity a spacefaring species and so forth, and that would be world historic. The other is solar energy, cheap solar energy would change the world, so forth. Uh, Now, I argued forcefully uh, for Mars because I pointed out, look, the business case for solar energy, if it could be made economic, is straightforward. 
Uh, if it can be made cheaper than fossil fuels, it's going to happen. The invisible hand will make it happen. And anybody who has a credible idea for advancing the technology or a better business model or something can go to Wall Street and they can get investment. And if any of these ideas can work, they're going to get the funding to give it a try. And if it will work, it will happen and it will not take a, a person of immense vision like you. It doesn't require a moonshot. There's a reason why we use yeah, the phrase moonshot. It right? doesn't require a moonshot. It doesn't require an Elon Musk. It will happen on its own. Uh, you know, the invisible hand will do it. But there are certain things that need to be done that won't be done by the visible hand, invisible hand left to its own devices. So this needs you. Now, I had set him up with Cantrell because we had interested him in this concept that the Mars Society had for launching uh, a small artificial gravity satellite with a crew of mice in it that they'd live in Mars gravity and we'd be able to see how mammals from Earth would fare in Mars gravity, how their children born in Mars gravity would develop. This would be the first data on this. And um, Musk was very interested in funding this and um, I teamed him up with Jim Cantrell as a technical expert to advise him on this project and they had gone to Russia and encountered the kleptocrats there who was clear doing business with them was a non-starter. That is, the rocket launches were nominally cheap, but they'd be picking your pocket while you were trying <laughs> to do business. Yeah. And and basically, Cantrell then convinced him that the key thing he needed to do was start his own launch company and guided him in the early phases of that. Um, so that's how I met Musk. And... Uh, uh, and uh, now Musk is, of course, a person of great ability, and his accomplishments, the accomplishments of SpaceX are those of him and his team. Uh, but as a messenger for the idea uh, that helped uh, convince him to devote himself to this, I, um, I like to think I had a role. Uh, as, of course, did Cantrell. And Cantrell, of course, also worked at SpaceX to uh, help develop the first Falcon, the Falcon 1. And now Cantrell is off leading his own entrepreneurial space company, uh, Vector Launch. Um, but, um, but, you know, this is the thing. The idea recruits uh, the people to its banner. And Musk, though, has greatly added to that not merely in terms of his own technical accomplishments, but in proving to others that they can do it, that it can be done, that it's possible for a lean, well-led entrepreneurial company to do things that previously thought that only the governments of major powers could do. Yeah. And as a result of that, he's not just created some useful hardware, he's created a spaceflight entrepreneurial revolution, an entrepreneurial space race. There's dozens of people getting into this game competing launch systems and spacecraft development and all sorts of stuff. Yep. And uh, this is happening around the world. It's bringing in people from nations that were previously not in space. New Zealand has a space launch called a Rocket Lab that has reached orbit. Wow. Uh, okay. And there's a case similar to Cantrell where you have people who are not billionaires doing this with play money, but uh, working engineers who've managed to find investors to enable it. You have one in Ukraine. You, you know, this uh, several in China. Uh, and we're going to hear a lot more from these people. And this is a great thing because, you know, if it was just Musk, uh, he'd have no need to reduce the cost of space launch more than he already has, which, by the way, has been significant, about a factor of five. Uh, okay. Uh, if it was Lockheed Martin, they would just reduce it 10% below the competition. Okay. But if we want to reduce the factor of 100, we're going to have to keep this... Uh, uh, 
competitive uh, uh, system going. And one of the best things that people in the general public, okay, I mean, if you're a technical, you could join SpaceX or Blue Origin, or you could get together with some other guys and some people with business smarts and start your own entrepreneurial venture. But if you're not someone who can do either of those things, one thing you can do as a member of the body politic is insist that the government promote this revolution by taking advantage of the revolution. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And it's in everyone's best. I mean, it's in the taxpayer's best interest because they're getting a better deal. It's in NASA's best interest because they're doing more science than they could otherwise. It's, it's a, you know, win for everyone except for vendors and I assume, you know, some Congress people. Um, so on the topic, I mean, you you recently went to China. You said and saw a space la- one of these space la- orbital space launches. Um, there's this bit of a tension between the old vision. I mean, so the 1960s vision of of space flight is a Cold War era vision. It's of national. It's a national story, a national mythology, a national narrative that inspires folks to some extent. Um, that's wedded to the nation state. Now, now what you're talking about now is, well, is private sector. This isn't necessarily a function of nations advancing humanity in the space for the power of nation, you know, for the, for the glory of the nation state. Um, but a, a kind of a broader transnational vision. And I so, so suppose that sets up a question who, where do you think the first human being to land on Mars will come from? Do you think it'll be from the U S do you think it'll be from another nation? And do you really care? Well, uh, at this point, the leading contender for landing people on Mars is SpaceX uh, because they want to do it. Uh, you know, uh, a few years ago, I would have still said it was NASA. Uh, but uh, the NASA has embraced a Mars plan, which is so absurd and vendor-driven, creating giant interplanetary spaceships based at its lunar-orbiting spaceport, none of which anyone who actually wanted to go to Mars would include on their critical path. And, for instance, Musk doesn't include. He has embraced a more efficient plan, um, which is uh, a variant of the Mars Direct plan that I laid out as early as uh, 1990. Uh, But the... um, and which is still discussed in this book, The Case for Space, as well as how I would update it in light of the more recent developments. Um, But, um, so yeah, SpaceX, and and if that's the case, then it would probably be Americans. Uh, And I would think that would be a great thing. Uh, Now, because I would like... American values to be part of humanity's future. 500 years from now, the vast majority of humans will live on other planets. Okay, 500 years from now, there will be new branches of human civilization, not only on Mars, but on thousands of stars orbiting, uh, on thousands of planets orbiting nearby stars. Uh, And what will be their culture? Will they still preserve individual rights, liberty, freedom, uh, or or will it be something else? It was, I mean, look, um, I, I think it was very fortunate historically that the American colonies were settled by um, the British and not, for instance, by the Turks. Uh, the Because uh, the Tudor England treasured certain ideas of, of individualism and individual conscience and 
freedom of thought and expression, uh, which were the seed ideas for uh, a, a, a much better type of civilization that could be accomplished by uh, the despotisms of, of the East. And, uh, and we're benefiting from that. Now, of course, we've developed since then. That, that was our point of departure. Okay, new branches of human civilization in space, they will develop in their own directions. They will have new forms of social organization, of governance. They'll have new dialects. They'll have new literatures. Uh, they'll have new ideas. Uh, but I think it'd be really very good for the future of humanity if this, what we have here, played a significant role in being their point of departure. Now, I have to say... I, I don't think that it's going to be exclusively American. I, uh, you know, uh, I've just been to China, and I was quite impressed by the change since the last time I was there, which was 2006, and what my father saw in 1978. Uh, so there's something happening there, and I'm not one who's going to tell you uh, I've seen the future and it is Chinese. <laughs> yeah. But I have seen the future and it includes the Chinese. And uh, absolutely – and uh, so there's going to be a new melting pot. There's going to be a new mix. But I'd like us to be part of it. Yeah, sure. Yeah, no, I, that's it. Just because there's a point of departure doesn't the, what what that point of departure is matters, right? It's yes. part of the DNA, the kind of cultural DNA, the civilizational DNA. Um, to turn tax just the change tax just a little bit. Um, uh, so not only are you president of Pioneer Aeronautics, you're also president of Pioneer Energy, right? Uh, no, I used to be president of Pioneer Energy. Uh, I, I'm no longer in, in, okay. in management there. I still have some stock, but I, I don't play an active role okay. in Pioneer Energy anymore. But Pioneer Energy was a spinoff of Pioneer Astronautics. Uh, that's the name of my company, oh, not Aeronautics. But the um, – and uh, – we developed uh, technology for uh, separating natural gas liquids out of flare gas so it can be used as fuel instead of just being flared and going up in smoke. So th that's an example, one of thousands that can be cited of uh, uh, practical here and now spinoffs of, of space mm -hmm. activities. Mm -hmm. But uh, actually, if you want to know, <laughs> the the real spinoff from the uh, space uh program ha has not been particular technological innovations, uh, whether they're flare gas capture machines or more prominently, for example, uh, practical uh, solar panels. Uh, it's a result of the space program. Uh, but uh, the intellectual capital, uh, you know, the, the number of science graduates in the United States doubled at every level, high school, college, PhD. In fact, it tripled at the PhD level and in the 1960s during Apollo because Apollo said to every primarily boys at the time, um, learn your science and you can be a pioneer in new worlds. And so we got millions of scientists and engineers and inventors and technological entrepreneurs. And these are the people, these little boy mad scientists making rocket fuel and robots in the basement in the 1960s who built Silicon Valley in the 1990s. And that's the payoff. Now, if we did this now, if we had this kind of thing going on, uh, we'd get millions of little boy and girl mad scientists and you'd have a revolution in education you know people concerned about american education and they're doing exactly the wrong thing think they can test the kids to death into beat them into uh uh higher educational performance by subjecting them to repeated testing this is exactly the opposite this makes school and learning a turnoff turns it into rat training okay um you know uh 
Whereas if you make science the great adventure, youth loves adventure. Then they become, then who, you know, before I became an engineer, I was actually a teacher for seven years. And I taught in good schools and bad and in between. And the one lesson I took away from that was anybody can teach kids who want to learn and nobody can teach kids who don't want to learn. That's really what it comes down to. And so having the societal drive that this is what we are doing, this is where we are going, okay, the, 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 this is what it will, will get a revolution in education from the kids. Yeah. So you're teaching school, high school science, high school? High school and junior high. For, for seven years. Yeah. What made you decide to go back to school to get an engineering degree? To Well, uh, you know, I mean, I had grown up during Apollo and I had been inspired by that and I wanted to be part of it and I got myself a scientific education. But by the time I graduated college in 74, the space program had basically collapsed. And somehow, you know, the real world got to me, the so-called real world that said, look, you know, okay, dreaming you're going to be an astronaut is fine when you're 10 years old. Good kid, great, happy. But look, you're graduating school now and you got to get a job. And astronauts and space explorers, they're the people on the other side of the TV screen. The people on our side of the TV screen, you know, our teachers and lawyers and accountants, this is what happens on this side of the TV screen. So take your pick. So science teacher, uh, you know, to me, I always wanted a profession where I could have a, a positive impact on the world. I wasn't just interested in doing something to buy groceries. And okay, teacher, fine. Uh, and I did that, but you know, in 1983, I'm living in Northern Manhattan and teaching in Brooklyn and taking the A train an hour and 15 minutes each way, uh, to work and back and reading novels by Herman Melville about sailing the South seas and saying to myself, what am I doing here? What, what am I doing here? What, this is not what I signed up for. So uh, I, I, I decided to apply to graduate school in engineering, and I was accepted in a number of places. And I went to the University of Washington because it was the furthest from New York. And, <laughs> the, uh, uh, and also I was delighted by Seattle and Mount Rainier and all the great stuff there. And, and it was the best decision I ever made, and I became an engineer. And, and while I was doing that, I heard about a group called the Mars Underground. And this was a group of people, Chris McKay, Carol Stoker, Tom Meyer, Penelope Boston. They were mostly graduate students at the University of Colorado, and they were of my generation, people who grew up with Apollo and then seen it all go away, but who did not accept this idea that those were the visions of youth and now we should just forget it. Grow up and okay. be real. And okay, that, right. and they started holding these conferences called The Case for Mars, and I heard about it, and I went to the third one in 87, and there were a 1,000 people there, and Carl Sagan was there, and Thomas Paine, who had been the administrator of NASA when we landed on the moon, was there, and they were saying, no, the purpose of NASA is not just to launch satellites on a space shuttle. The purpose of NASA, the National Space Program, is to open the space frontier, and in particular, the goal is Mars. And I also saw the immense, the very interesting problems that they were addressing, a multidimensional technical problem involving everything, space launch and space travel, life support, and situ resource utilization, you know, all the, uh, 
all these different things. And so it was a very interdisciplinary uh, problem that attracted me. And uh, I said, I want to be part of this. And there was a guy there at the conference, Ben Clark from Martin Marietta, who was leading the Mars studies there. I went up to him, and by then I had had a pretty good graduate education in nuclear engineering and aeronautics and astronautics. And he said, send me your resume. And a year later, I was working at Martin. Wow. That's a great story. Um, and I can actually still see the uh, educator in you. How, I mean, as you're speaking to an audience, the, the, those seven years of teaching still show up in, I think, how you carry yourself. Yeah, it, it yourself. has done me yeah. good service. Yeah. Um, so degree in nuclear engineering uh, from Washington, um, even though you went in a, you know aeronautics, astronautics direction, ultimately, um, apply, you, have, you have some background in nuclear energy. Um, and then the industry's fallen on hard times since the early 80s. Uh, do you see as part of um, you know, this future vision for, uh, for energy? I mean, even if Pioneer Energy was involved in the natural gas industry, uh, do you see a role for nuclear energy, for fusion energy? In uh, Well, I, I do. Um, and uh, as I discuss in the book, uh, the entrepreneurial space revolution has let loose uh, uh, another revolution in, in fusion energy because uh, fusion is one of these things like reusable launch vehicles that people, you know, have been talked about forever, but it was never happening. It was always going to happen in the future. It's always going to be in the future. Uh, but then people saw what Musk did with the reusable space launches and they took a second look at fusion and said, maybe the problem here is like reusable launchers. Maybe the problem isn't fundamentally technical. Maybe it's institutional. Uh, and I have to say, because I was actually working in fusion in the 80s, uh, that there was some realization within the program at that time in, in the working ranks that this was the problem. Uh, and in fact, at a group lunch at Los Alamos, the group leader said to us, he said, look, you know, when fusion power is finally developed, it's not going to be at a place like Los Alamos or Livermore. It's going to be a couple of crackpots working in a garage. Now, that I think may have been a bit overdrawn, but... Um, I think, while not a couple of crackpots in a garage, by a small entrepreneurial team working in a warehouse. Yeah, by a startup. And in fact, as a result of the spaceflight revolution, there are now a number of fusion power startups that have gotten serious funding. I'm talking half a billion dollars funding each. Uh, and I discuss a number of them in the book. There's also a number in the fission area as well. Um, and the uh, thorium reactors and things like this. So... <laughs> We're going to have new options presented to us. And I'm particularly excited about fusion, both because uh, that is an old passion of mine, but also because fusion represents not just an additional source of energy. It represents a new type of energy, just as nuclear power in a way did. I mean, look, nuclear power has uh, not prevailed on land. Uh, it's made a certain impact, but the place where it has prevailed is in submarines. Because you can do something with a nuclear-powered submarine that you simply cannot do with a diesel-powered submarine. Okay. Yes, you can generate uh, electricity with a diesel engine or a fossil fuel power plant just as well or co comparably to a nuclear electric plant. A kilowatt's a kilowatt. But 
the nuclear plant can stay underwater for months and uh, it's just a diesel-powered sub has got to come up every day. And uh, the, the, So it's a different animal. Similarly, a fusion-powered spacecraft, you can have, fusion drives are capable of exhaust velocities, perhaps 7% the speed of light. And a well-designed rocket could probably get to about twice its exhaust velocity. Uh, so you're talking about exceeding 10% the speed of light. You're talking about not just opening up the solar system, you're talking about uh, uh, initiating interstellar travel. Hmm. Wow. So one of the, um, you talked about this in your presentation, uh, you are not in the category of folks who argue that we should leave the Earth. And there's a, there is a, uh, like almost a post-apocalyptic strain in science fiction where humanity has to abandon earth because we trash the environment. And so we have to get on, you know, uh, rockets and go to other planets. Um, that does not seem to be, you know, your, your propelling vision. Yours is kind of a pro human, more people means more innovation, more culture, more, you know, more, uh, innovation. Um, that's right. It's together to Mars and then together with Mars. Yeah, that's right. And 500 years from now together with hundreds of other, and that's yeah, right. That's right. Um, Though, speak, I mean, I, I think this is something that's of, of interest to our listeners in this moment. That kind of eco, eco-apocalyptic vision is still quite prevalent in popular culture and in minds of policymakers. I mean, we have the arguably that's one of the driving impulses of the Green New Deal that's been proposed. So, what what's the counter? What is the hopeful, innovative counter vision? for uh for solving humanity's this worldly problems even as we look towards you know extraplanetary okay well let me just make it clear um the main threat to humanity today does not come from resource exhaustion or global warming or asteroidal impact for that matter uh it comes from bad ideas okay the 20th century did not experience a resource exhaustion crisis. It experienced world wars fought in anticipation of a mythical resource exhaustion crisis. We are not in danger from running out of resources. We are in danger from people who think we are running out of resources. We are not in danger from there being too many people. We're in danger of from people who think there are too many people. Okay, and the the the. And, and so this idea that there's only so much to go around, this was the ultimate idea leading to two world wars and a Holocaust and a Holodomor and various other things. And it could cause uh, uh, even worse uh, events in the 21st century because, of course, the weaponry is more potent today. You know, the people who think that sooner or later we're going to have to fight it out in China because, you know, if the Chinese are all developed, then they'll all have cars and there won't be enough oil in the world. And we got to keep them down. And the China looks at us and they from the other side of the chessboard and they say the same thing. And uh, but this is crazy. This is crazy because, look, if China develops the sons and daughters of Chinese peasants in significant numbers start going to college and becoming engineers and scientists and they start contributing inventions at a comparable rate to Westerners, the rate of human progress is going to vastly accelerate. And similarly, China today has benefited enormously from invention in the West. Um, that is what is allowing the revolution in human circumstances in China that has occurred over the past 30 years. Uh, and of course, the uh, technological revolution in the West in the first place was enabled by a number of Chinese inventions, including paper and printing and so on. I mean, the, the, 
inventions made anywhere ultimately benefit everyone everywhere. And the, 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 and if we can show that the fundamental human prospect is not a struggle for existence between nations over scarce resources, but a collaborative enterprise of different peoples contributing their own genius to expanding the human prospect, this is what is fundamental to avert war. And this idea, okay, and I, I have to say, okay, this idea of limited resources, which has both its left and right wing variety. In the left, it's currently ecologism. In the right, it's nativism. Okay. One says there aren't enough resources. The other says there aren't enough opportunities. Uh, they are the flip side of each other. They're both wrong. They're both wrong because there's no such thing as a natural resource. It is human beings that are resourceful. It is human ingenuity that turns natural raw materials into resources. And the ultimate resource is people. Okay, as Julian Simon wrote years ago, that book is still very much worth reading, The Ultimate Resource. I strongly recommend it. But despite the fact that this idea of limited resource has been repeatedly proven, that is, the human standard of living has gone up with the number of people. Okay, when Malthus wrote, there was one billion people in the world and the average per capita income in the world in today's dollars was $180 a year. Today, there's 7 billion people. It's $9,000 a year is the average worldwide. In the U.S., it's 45000 but worldwide, it's nine. Okay, that is 50 times what it was. in So the number of people has gone up by a factor of seven. The per capita income has gone up by seven squared, and the total product has gone up by seven cubed. There could not be an idea more counterfactual than the Malthusian conceit. But yet people still fundamentally believe it. And we need to refute it in a way that makes it completely visible and by showing that it's not true that there isn't enough to go around because the earth comes with an infinite sky. Okay? The earth is in space. And Space is open to us, and there's infinity open to us, provided instead of tearing each other up, okay, you know, for the, a bottle of water that's sitting in the room, and there's, we, we have this idea in our head that there's no way out of the room, and so all the water in the world that's available is for you and me, and we have to kill each other, so you is going to get the bottle of water in the room, instead of taking advantage of all the magnificent resources there are worldwide that we just leave the room and go forth, and, you know, uh, and, 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 and so forth. That this is how, and, and space is going to save us. And once again, it is not, I am arguing, it is not we're going to import oil from Mars to make up for that in the Persian Gulf. The issue is not materials imported to the Earth from space. The issue is how understanding that space is open to us affects our worldview and how we deal with all matters. Okay, because ideas have consequences. That's a wonderful, uh, I think, spot to end the interview. And I would like to recommend all of our listeners uh, buy a copy of The Case for Space, How the Revolution in Space Flight Opens Up a Future of Limitless Possibility. If you want to hear and you know read in much more detail about the topics that we're, we've discussed today, uh, out later this month with Penguin Random House, uh, available at bookstores near you. And uh, Amazon. And Amazon. Yeah, well, let's be honest. Everyone's buying off Amazon these days. <laughs> uh, Dr. Zubrin, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you for inviting me. Thanks for listening. Building Tomorrow is produced by Tess Terrible. If you enjoy Building Tomorrow, please subscribe to us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. 
If you'd like to learn more about libertarianism, find us on the web at www.libertarianism.org.